and fairly and well those who have given us a task and help us engage in meaningful discussion and give us clarity and strength using our only our best skills and judgment. Please bless this community, its residents, its businesses, and its visitors. Help us to do so in doing good work in your name. Amen. Call to order. Councilmember Hollingshead. Here. Councilmember Cavey. Yes. Councilmember Bracken. Present. Councilmember Brooks. Present. Councilmember Dietz. Here. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur. Here. Mayor Gray. Here. All are present. Thank you. Please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I'll start with council comments. Um, First, I want to thank everyone for coming tonight. I know we have a kind of fun night and in, 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 in with uh, some council comments and, and with uh, having people in the audience speaking as well. Um, hope everyone had a great uh, President's Day weekend. Hopefully everyone had a safe one. Um, and I just want to uh, thank everyone, again everyone for coming and uh, being a part of this tonight. Ryan? No comment tonight. Councilmember Cavey? No comment tonight. Councilmember Bracken? Yeah, thank you, Mayor. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, kind of our agendas lately and uh, the lack of items. And just just so folks know, like that are here in the community and and in the crowd, that that um, you know, by and large, it, it, we we get held accountable to the flux of growth within town. And no one tends to mention when things come in a downturn. Some of our meetings have been like 30 and 45 minutes, which, which have been records. And, and, the, and the three ladies in the third row here uh, have been showing up to our meetings very regularly. They're very loyal council nerds, if you will, if I may. Uh, so well done, ladies. You're like me. Um, but, uh, but, but that's what happens when the economy and the market Takes care of itself in the in the in a downturn, which then it also affects our budgets as well. So we have less for police and fire. We have less money for uh, for roads and those things because there's a slowdown in growth. And so I, I just wanted to point out um, essentially that our meetings have been short and 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 very uh, uh, very pointed and lackluster because there's a lot not a lot of items on the agenda because there's not a lot of things to decide and, and the market's deciding that, not us. We don't dictate the market collectively. We decide somebody has to vote and approve uh, the items, whether, whether we like them or a lot sometimes or not sometimes, it doesn't matter. It matters if it's going to be approved or not approved because that's the process. So I just wanted to point that out uh, that we've been in a downturn. Uh, the, the agenda's fairly robust tonight compared to the, to the last four. Um, and we have some exciting items. So thanks for everybody to coming coming tonight. And uh, I just wanted to kind of give a little brief summary of, of why we've only been here for under an hour. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Brooks. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, just want to give a shout out to Castleview High School lacrosse team. Uh, there was a, a nice service for Joe Procopio 
yesterday. Uh, fittingly, at the Jim Sullivan Event Center, I know that Joe looked up to Jim quite a bit, uh, and the yeah, Joe, one of his um, kind of side passions was he was a coach uh, at Castleview for lacrosse. I believe that the uh, lacrosse fields there are going to be uh, probably named after Joe Procopio, which is fantastic. But yeah, I mean, let's let's be honest. Memorial services aren't exactly fun, uh, but it was pretty much the entire Castleview lacrosse team came out uh, to the service, which I thought was really touching. And I just want to you know kind of recognize them for doing that. So thank you. That was uh, was well done. Thank you, Councilmember Dietz. Yeah, thank you everybody for coming. Just want to encourage people to give hope to each other. If you see you can help somebody, help them. I think we're in times where we all have differences and takes, whether you're President Trump or Joe Biden. Just remember it's up to us, the voters, not the media, not the social media warriors. Do your own research. Help shovel somebody's driveway. That will help you take some Time off your hands. I'm seeing a no there. So, so, anyways, do your research on that, and if you can help somebody, help them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mayor Ports Pro Tem Lafour. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everybody. Um, I have to give a big, big shout out to Jeff Brower and his team over at Red Hawk. As Red Hawk turns 25 years old this year, uh, my husband is celebrating 25 years at the golf course this year. And they got number one, an avid golfer, and the publication is out, and I couldn't be prouder of the folks over at the golf course. Uh, that It's such a great amenity that we add to our town, and I'm so proud of all of you. You guys have just crushed it over there. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Council. Um, moving on to the executive session report for February 6, 2024. An executive session was held at the conclusion of the February 6, 2024 regular town council meeting. The purpose of the executive session was as follows. A conference with the town attorney to be conducted in accordance with section 24-6-4024B CRS for the purpose of receiving legal advice for rezoning applications submitted to Douglas County by JRW Family Limited Partnership for the proposed Pine Canyon development if anyone believes the substantial discussion on these matters were not included in the motion to go forward to executive session occurred during executive session or that any improper action was occur occurred during the executive session in a violation with the open meetings law, I would like you to state your concerns for the record. Seeing none, we'll move on to unscheduled public appearances. This time is reserved for members of the public to make a presentation to council on items or issues that are not scheduled on the agenda. As a general practice, the uh, council will not discuss or debate these items, nor will council make any decisions on these items during this time. Rather, we will refer these items to staff for follow-up. Comments are limited to three minutes per speaker. Time will be limited to 30 minutes total. Residents will be given priority in the order they signed up, followed by non-residents representing town of Castle Rock businesses, and then non-residents, and then businesses outside of town of Castle Rock as time permits. Council is also accepting public comments submitted written online at crgov.com backslash council comments by 1 p.m. today to be included in the public record. Now, if anybody signed up to speak, if you'd like to speak, please approach the podium or online. Seeing none, town manager report. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, just a few items as 
Shannon brings up the calendar and then we'll uh, get into a couple of uh, legislative items. It's a reminder of our calendar. Um, as we are um, hopeful for spring, it's time to start talking about the pavement maintenance program, the PMP. And you see where here in the, toward the end of March, we've got an open house uh, scheduled there at the ACC campus um, from 4.30 to, to 6. That's because um, one of the areas of emphasis is going to be the west side of the meadows. As council knows, we rotate some of our areas of emphasis because we get better uh, bids. Um, so that's where the area of emphasis is going to be for a lot of the pavement maintenance work. But we've got um, a number of other projects that council will be, um, will be looking at. And I think we've got maybe just one more slide. A couple of neighborhood meetings. Um, we've got, um, so we're continuing the cleanup of some town-owned property. We acquired some property for the Four Corners project. Got some miscellaneous uh, tracks on uh, Ridge and, and, and Gilbert as well. Um, so we're following our town processes and uh, having a, a neighborhood meeting for that. Um, I, I can't imagine it will be a, a, a lengthy meeting. Um, and then we've got um, a couple of other uh, ones that are still in the, in, in the tentative stage. And I think that concludes what I have for the report. And now uh, Kristen is going to come up and provide a, uh, an update, an overview. Appreciate Councilmember Dietz's service on the CML Policy Committee. Um, and uh, Kristen's been sitting in on some of that as well. We want to uh, confirm the direction on a number of items that are pending before our General Assembly and how we can direct communication to our legislative delegation in regards to that. We also have signed up for some opportunities to testify in regards to some of these bills um, as well. So that's what Kristen's going to provide a, an update on. And then under the same theme of legislative updates, but talking about federal legislation, Mark's going to come up and, and talk about a letter that we want to send to our uh, United States senators in regards to some federal legislation. Kristen. Thank you, Dave and Mayor and Council for having me here for another legislative update. Um, just to overview, of course, we don't take any positions without coming to you. When I sat before you two weeks ago, we were tracking about 70 bills, and now that's over 115. So things are really happening down there at the General Assembly. And uh, we, of course, don't go over everything, but I have my computer so I can call up you know, if you've got questions, let me know. Um, but there are a few bills that you may wish to support in our view from past conversations we've had with you all. Um, the first, dealing with construction defects, and that's really to try to get more housing choices not only to you know folks who might want to live in Castle Rock, but throughout the state. Um, Mayor. Uh, has been engaged with this bill through his work at Metro Mayors. Both Metro Mayors and CML are supporting that bill. Uh, it's set to be in committee March 5th, so if you all wanted to support that bill, we would uh, get engaged on that one and uh, sign up to testify and throw our support 
behind that one. Similarly, Councilmember Brooks last meeting had asked about CML's land use bill. That still has not been introduced, which is strange. We thought it was going to be introduced almost a couple weeks ago now. Um, you know, the latest draft is 44 pages. Um, you know, we think that's probably pretty close to what's going to be introduced. So you guys could act on that draft and indicate your support, or you could wait until we see an introduced bill. Um, the very high-level summary is that it would require local governments to conduct housing needs assessments and to progress toward meeting goals in these assessments using action plans. That's just a super high-level capture of a 44-page bill. But if you want to get engaged, as I mentioned last time I updated you all, you know, some communities are concerned that that does add to local government's requirements, so we might want to um, pause on that one and see where it goes once it gets introduced, but did want to bring back a little bit more information about that one since you all asked about it last time. And then the final bill we thought you all might wish to support, you know, there's a lot of conversations going on right now about property tax. Of course, the town's property tax is very reasonable at $40 for the average house, but there has been a bill introduced by a couple of our local Douglas County um, representatives that would aim to ensure that future reassessments don't increase property values by more than 6% unless there's some sort of unusual condition present. And that one is set to be in committee here next week, so we thought that might be one you all would wish to support also just to um, indicate, you know, some level of affordability for what's going on out there with property taxes. On the other side, there are a couple of bills we thought you all might wish to oppose. You all have been interested in bills with Second Amendment impacts in the past, and there are two of those that have been introduced. The first one would uh, prohibit what the bill references as assault weapons, and then the second one uh, involves what is termed sensitive spaces, which includes some of the town's own properties being parks and even places where um, we would host town meetings and that bill aims to prohibit both open and concealed carrying in sensitive spaces. And um, particularly with the concealed carrying, that seemingly would be an enforcement challenge because um, the police wouldn't necessarily know who is concealed carrying. So I wanted to bring those bills to your attention also. And the final slide is to update on the bills that you all took action to oppose last time we talked, which the first uh, on occupancy limits, that has been set for a committee hearing on March 12th, and we are signed up to testify there, as well as the bill on accessory dwelling units that is set for a hearing next week, and we are signed up to testify. The minimum parking requirements bill has now been introduced, but is not yet set for a hearing that was just introduced on Valentine's Day, so still um, getting scheduled and all of that. And then the transit-oriented communities bill was just introduced today, and it's a 56-page bill, so I haven't had the chance to fully digest it yet. You know, the earlier representations were that it doesn't apply to Castle Rock, but I need a little bit of time to make sure that that holds true. But really, our opposition was based on the grounds of local control and not necessarily if it would impact us immediately or not. Uh, so wanted to update you on all of those. And that's the end of the presentation, but of course, glad to answer any questions you all might have. Thank you. Question for Kristen. Laura Cavey. Can you go back to the first page? What is the right to remedy construction defects? Does that mean that the owner would then go to the developer 
to have it fixed instead of say their insurance company? I mean, I'm trying to understand what 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 this does. So yeah, generally there's a lot of legal back and forth that occurs typically in my understanding of it between a, the collective of owners, like this typically happens in a condoed building, right? And which is generally more affordable housing stock. And so there tends to be, you know, years worth of back and forth and lawsuits and, and things of that nature that occur when these buildings are constructed just by matter of course, and Mike can probably speak more to some of his experiences with this. But um, so really the, the goal is to help reduce some of these claims and back and forth that occur so that it is more hospitable environment to build this more affordable housing stock. Yeah, if I may add, there's been a, a long standing uh, dispute between uh, the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association and the uh, 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 home building, condo building community. Uh, years ago, a couple decades ago, uh, statute was amended to make it uh, exceptionally easy for anyone to file a construction defect lawsuit uh, uh, in a condominiumized project. And so uh, a lot of plaintiff's attorneys made a lot of money that way. And the uh, insurance companies lost a lot of money. And so they started not insuring condominium projects, which is why the, uh, there were very few, if any, condominium projects built uh, during the last decade uh, uh, in this state. Uh, couldn't get insurance. So uh, I believe that the, uh, uh, the bill, once again, is an effort to limit the ability to file lawsuits in those cases. So make, make it a little more difficult raising the standard, raising the bar, so that uh, more of these type of projects can get built. Michael, if I may add to that a little bit. So one of the reasons why we haven't seen condos built is because of litigation. So what we're seeing is a huge influx of apartments with mm -hmm. very little condos. And so in Castle Rock, we give an example, we've only had one condo building in the last like 15 years. We've had a lots and lots of apartments because they're not sued the same way. That's right. And so in up and down the front range, like Michael mentioned, in the last 15, 20 years, you don't see condos being built because every time they get a condo being built, they cannot get it insured or they're getting sued. And so the, the construction defects really is trying to help the condo market and kind of alleviate and, and dissipate some of the rental market instead. So the idea is that if there's, if there's a construction defects bill, you'll see more condos and less apartments. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good description, Mayor. Okay, thank you. Um, can I make a couple comments on some of these? Sure. So particularly the one around parking, um, Obviously, we know that we already have challenges with parking. Um, we've been hearing from our downtown business owners about parking. Um, I hear from constituents all the time about parking downtown, um, regardless of, of where there are some parking spaces maybe coming. It, it's not realistic to believe that somebody's going to walk 15 minutes, <laughs> particularly in inclement weather from one of the new buildings, let's say, uh, over to Perry Street. It's just not realistic. So since we already have our own parking challenges, um, I'm very much obviously against um, this bill going through. It could decimate our downtown. It could continue to decimate any kind of condo building, apartment building, 
Um, you know, where are those people going to park their vehicles? This is a bedroom community. We do not have mass transit here. So if you don't have a car, um, you're probably not going to live here. And if you have a car and you want to live here and there's nowhere to park, you're probably not going to live here. So this one um, particularly hits home to me, and I'm very much against it and in support of us speaking out against it. Um, one other comment that I just want to make, it's not on this list because it never kind of made it out of the committee. It was a bill that Representative Bradley put forward, um, and it was basically to kind of have um, harsher penalties around people that um, traffic children, sell children, um, they sell them to people who will then rape them, um, take advantage of them, um, just absolutely horrible things, and, and those, those people, those criminals, are pretty much walking free today. And so the bill was aimed at harsher penalties for people that sell our children into, um, you know, horrible situations. That bill never made it out because every single one of the Democratic legislatures voted against it. So I highly urge you, this should, to me, is something that all of us should be able to come together on. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on, doesn't matter if you're an independent, doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, doesn't matter if you're a Republican. These are our children. Our children are our future. We should be protecting our children. And what does it say about us when we're not willing to do that? So I just wanted to bring that to everybody's attention. If, if anybody wants to talk to me about it, I highly encourage you um, to reach out to those legislatures and let them know how you feel about this. It's ridiculous. So anyway, I know that one's not on here and it was a little bit of a sidebar, but anyway, I, it's very upsetting to me. Thank May you. I, uh, Max Brooks? Yeah, on that, on that specific measure. Yep. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was to punish the buyers in that cycle, yeah. to really go after the buyers in the, in the, in the, in the human trafficking, yeah. Uh, because right now it's, uh, it's more of a probation type offense. Uh, and so this was, this was set specifically. It went to the kill committee. So as soon as it gets assigned to that committee, you know, you know what's going to happen there. And it went 8-3 on party line. Um, there is an organized letter writing campaign to the eight members that voted for it that are trying to normalize this type of thing uh, and I would not be opposed if it's not inappropriate to send a letter uh, from the town to those members of the committee to say look you know we're taking a position on this and we believe that this is something that is good for everybody you know and it shouldn't be political um, we're talking about trying to punish the buyers in the cycle and and when you take away the demand you know, you're going to to have an impact in this entire ring of, of trafficking so you open that up for discussion if anybody else would you know, care to, to say that we should add this in to a letter that we're writing in support of. I, I would be for that. Yeah, for I sure. agree. I think that we'd we, be nice to have a letter doing that. I think that, you know, going back on that bill, where it was inappropriate, it was the buyer and the seller should, should have, you know, very, very punitive punishment. Yeah. And right now, it's, it's just it's just the seller, not the buyer. And, um and it should be both. I mean, yeah. Councilmember Dietz. Well, this on another note, but yeah, our, our, our 
what Councilmember Cavey brought up, Councilmember Brooks brought up, we need to take care of, we need to send that letter. It's very important and you know, as far as our infrastructure goes, it really comes down to we are a home rule town. I'm tired of downtown and Denver telling us how to regulate our town. That's up to you folks who elect us. It's we're a home rule town and they don't need to tell us how to develop or what parking spaces. We'll take care of that ourselves through you folks. So thank you. Thank you. Dave, can we get a letter for that, please? I think when I think we can, we, I'm, I'm seeing, I know probably all council, but I'm counting four at least, supportive of a letter. Thank you. Um, in, in, in regards to um, Representative uh, Bradley's bill. So I think we can just include that in the in the motion that Kristen is yeah. um, ask, asking for here at the end, if that if that's acceptable. That'd be great. And then just to, to dovetail on Councilman Cavey on the, and uh, uh, Deeds on the, on the parking, you know that, that parking might work really well for um, other parts of the communities, uh, but but again, we, uh, as Councilman Deeds mentioned, is it won't work well here. We don't believe it will work well here, but we, so we don't want that kind of imposition made on us. Um, each community can decide for its own whether they want to do uh, more and more multimodal, and we're just not that we're not there yet as a community. And, and I think that to set those standards in a community that you don't know anything about is is you know, it's pretty improper. So, thanks, Kristen. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Max. On the CML, uh, just just to be clear, we're we're not doing anything on that now. We're not recommending anything. We're going to wait till it's introduced to be able to read it and then decide. Or you could choose to support it, kind of like we preemptively opposed the parking bill and the transit-oriented communities bill because we kind of knew enough to know because we have two weeks in between meetings and so things are happening pretty quickly. So you all could, um, you know say you want to support it and then if we see something contrary to what we believe is going to be in there we could of course let you know that we need to have more discussion okay i, I would like to stay ahead of it that's a good thing yeah so did we have a motion i move to affirm staff recommendation recommended positions on state legislation as presented and directed staff to communicate these positions to the town's le legislative Delegation, CML, and others. And yeah, and add the letter. That's it. <laughs> Laura Cavey, second. I second. <laughs> uh, first by Max Brooks, a second by Laura Cavey. Any further discussion? First by Tim Oh, sorry, Tim Dietz, and then and then Laura Cavey. Um, any further discussion? Thanks for all your work, Chris. I know it's a lot of work. Lisa. Sorry, Councilmember Hollingshead. Aye. Councilmember Cavey. Yes. Councilmember Bracken. Yes. Councilmember Brooks. Aye. Councilmember Deep. Yes. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur. Aye. Mayor Gray. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Mark Marlowe. Uh, good evening, Mayor and Council. Shams just going to pull up an hour presentation I've got for you on forever chemicals. No. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you guys about forever chemicals. These are also known as per and polyfluoral alkyl substances. And they're in lots of consumer products and lots of other things and they've gotten into the environment and are causing issues, of course, as you guys know. Um, we treat for those at our water treatment plant and remove those currently. Uh, what's going on, however, is it looks like the EPA is going to um, make several of those P 
PFAS substances, hazardous wastes under CERCLA, which is also known as Superfund or the Comprehensive Environmental Response and Liability Act. And that could cause us a problem if they do because we remove those substances using granular activated carbon, for example, at the water plant, and that, then that granular activated carbon, when it becomes exhausted, gets disposed of in a disposal facility. And obviously, the PFAS may still be in that granular activated carbon, and if it's not properly disposed of, and the site becomes a Superfund site, we would then again, in theory, be liable as somebody that put PFAS into that site for cleanup costs. Now there's a solution to this out there. Uh, the US Senate actually has legislation to exempt water and wastewater facilities from being liable under CERCLA or Superfund for PFAS contamination that we did not generate, we did not create, but we're simply removing from the water supplies um, for a clean water and also from wastewater, quite frankly, because this will also impact the Plum Creek Water Reclamation Authority. So what we are recommending is it's very simple piece of legislation just exempting water and wastewater facilities from this liability under Superfund. Um, and we're recommending that we send a letter urging our, our Colorado U.S. Senators to support this legislation at the federal level. I'm happy to answer any questions. Any questions from Mark? Laura Cavey? What do we think the likelihood is they're going to pass that? <laughs> well, um, that's an open question, but there are a lot of water providers that are going to be sending letters to their senators, including folks like Aurora and Denver and others. Because this could have hundreds of millions of dollars of an impact on the community, correct? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, the way Superfund works, of course, is if you have contributed to the hazardous waste that goes into a site that becomes a cleanup site, uh, or a problem, then you are liable under the act for some of the cleanup costs. So it's kind of crazy when you think about it because Castle Rock Water certainly didn't manufacture PFAS, we didn't create it, put it in the environment. It's being used, manufactured by other folks. It gets into the water supply. All we're doing is removing it from the water to keep the water safe and then we can end up with this second level of liability. When you think about our ratepayers are already paying the cost to remove this chemical from the water, we don't want to have to then again pay to clean up PFAS in a disposal site if it's not handled properly. I appreciate that. Since we have quite a few people here, I wanted to make sure that everybody understood what we were talking about and what the impact to the community could be if something like this actually passes. So thank you. Any further questions for Mark? Is there a motion, Mark? Um, you can either give a motion or general consensus it's for a, us to send a, a letter. letter. General consensus is great. Yeah. yeah. Th thanks, Mark. Right. It's a good letter. Thank you. Anything further, David? 
No, just come into your reading the, the monthly reports. Uh, there's also some great information from our, uh, we call them service contract vendors, but they're uh, some great organizations, obviously, in the community that uh, council annually contracts with. You've got those annual reports there um, as well. And if there's any questions, uh, be sure and let me know. And I know that uh, those, uh, those entities would be glad to communicate with you if you've got any questions in regards to their report. That's all I've got this evening. Thank you. Thank you, David. Moving on to the town attorney's report. Uh, no report tonight, Mayor. Thank you, Michael. Moving on to the acceptance of the agenda. There are no changes, additions, or deletions to the agenda. A motion to accept the agenda as presented will be accepted. So moved. Second. Uh, first by Councilmember Bracken and a second by Councilmember Hollingshead. Any further discussion? Roll call vote, please. Councilmember Hollingshead. Aye. Councilmember Katie. Yes. Councilmember Bracken. Yes. Councilmember Brooks. Aye. Councilmember Dietz. Yes. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur. Aye. Mayor Gray. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Moving on to the consent calendar. These items are primarily routine in nature and have been pre previously reviewed by town council. Will be voted on a single motion without discussion. Any member of town council may remove an item from the consent calendar. Number eight, ordinance 2024-2, ordinance annexing the town of Castle Rock, Colorado, 3.74 acres of, of land owned by a town and located at section 25, township seven south, range 67 west and sixth principal meridian, Douglas County, Colorado. Number nine, ordinance 2024-3, ordinance approving initial zoning of 3.76 acres of land owned by that town, located in 25 section, Township 7, South Range 67, west of the 6th Principal Meridian, in Douglas County, Colorado. Number 10, number tw ordinance 2024-4, um, ordinance amending various provisions of the 4.04 of the Castle Rock Municipal Code regarding dedication of water rights and conditions of annexation of the town. And number 11, minutes 2024-4, minutes February 6, 2024, town council meeting. I'll accept the motion. So second. First by Councilmember Bracken and second by Councilmember Hollingshead. Any further discussion? Roll call vote, please. Councilmember Hollingshead. Aye. Councilmember Cavey. Yes. Councilmember Bracken. Yes. Councilmember Brooks. Aye. Councilmember Dietz. Yes. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur. Aye. Mayor Gray. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Next, we have advertised public hearings and discussion action items. Public comment will be taken on these items for four minutes per speaker. Uh, council will also accept comments submitted written online at crgov.com backslash council comments by 1 p.m. today to be included in the public record. Number 12, ID number 2024-23, presentation from the Citizens Art Advisory Group. I think, I think it's gonna be Jen. So. Is it on? Good. Hi, I'm Jen Perry, and I represent a small but rapidly growing group of a citizens advisory group. It's made up of community leaders representing education, philanthropy, business, um, not-for-profits and arts, and we've come together to dig into the question, is it time for Castle Rock to 
um, join SCFD. So when we started to dig into it, we found that there were a lot of questions. Um, and every time we looked for the answers, we got a lot of misinformation, some of it left over from 1999, some of it more recent. Or as we talked to people, we uncovered that um, really everybody had their perspective on it, but it wasn't the whole story. So what we really wanted to do is ask all the questions and try to get the full story. So what we're here today to talk about is just to educate you. We want to share with you all the questions that we asked and all the answers that we got, but then we also want to open it up. We know that you're going to have questions. So coming out of today, what we hope is that um, we've opened a dialogue on those questions and that you'll feel comfortable asking them of us in the, in the coming weeks. So we're not asking for any formal motion or anything like that. We just want you to listen with open hearts. So um, I know that you received a memo this week that gave some of, of an overview of SCFD, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining SCFD. I'll hit some highlights, but really I'm going to dig into what the potential impact could be for the community. So it, it was started in 1988 in Denver and then rapidly expanded to the seven county region. It's a penny on $10 and it supports the seven um, front range counties um, around Denver. So tier one, tier two, and tier three. I know you got a little bit of information on this, but I want to add to it. So tier one, those are the six that are in Denver, but I want you to think of them in terms of national, regional, and local. The national entities bring in about, they brought in about 12 million visitors last year, three million from out of state or out of country. So they're bringing us you know, the world stage, so to speak. Um, and we still qualify for some tier, if we were to vote, to be a part of it, um, their outreach efforts are covered under tier one. So any of those organizations that do outreach efforts. Tier two is gonna be your PACE Center and your Lone Tree Center. So if Cantrell were to become an arts and culture center, once it hits a revenue point of $1.8 million, it would qualify as a tier two entity. And then tier three is gonna be your hyper-local. Um, organizations that are listed there don't are not eligible today but those are the kinds of organizations that would be able to apply for grants under tier three so that would be like the arts alliance veterans program or the tri-arts pro, um, project their um, education programs so the reason we have to talk about it now is because the legislation renews every 12 years and the next time it renews is 2030. Um, the legislation is written that Castle Rock needs to vote by 2025 in order to be a part of the 2030 legislation. It is administered by a board and those tier three funds that come back down to on the county level um, are distributed by the um, Douglas County Cultural Council, which is a five person board appointed by the county commissioners. So what does this mean? The impact on the seven county region is big. Um, there are 300 organizations in those seven counties, $83 million. It's, it's a really big impact. What does that mean on a Douglas County perspective? So Douglas County, all of the towns in Douglas County are a part of SCFD except Castle Rock and Larkspur. Um, we are the only two and we are written into the legislation as not a part of it. Um, on average, so we're just taking, taking 2023 data, um, those tier three organizations were able to access 1.5 million in um, grant funds. I know the memo that you received 
received this week indicated what the Castle Rock portion is, but that's just Castle Rock's portion of it. There's actually, oops, a county-wide version that would be, you know, the bigger pool, so to speak. Um, there were 48 programs delivered to 41 schools last year in Douglas County, not including the 19 schools that are in Castle Rock. Um, this map just represents the 19 schools that are not a part of it. There are two that are in green that were annexed in over time, but of those 19, um, they are not able to bring SCFD funded programs to their school. So what does that mean? Like libraries can't apply for it, schools can't apply for it, but the organizations can actually bring their programs to the schools. So what does it do? It, it, it relieves impact on teachers, it, it diversifies the curriculum and makes it more interesting. They get reduced, reduced fees or free fees getting into SCFD um, organizations. They can write grants for field trip um, and, and paying for field trips. And um, schools can even rent their facilities to SCFD organizations to conduct their programming there. So that's just a kind of an, a little hint of what would a school be able to tap into. Um, there are 16 organizations in town right now that are not-for-profits that would qualify for SCFD funding that cannot do that because they are located in Castle Rock and have a Castle Rock address. So what does that mean? Castle Rock is excluded. So it means that no SCFD funded programs can come into Castle Rock. It means that no organizations in Castle Rock can get SCFD funding for any of their programs even if they go to an SCFD funded area. So even if the Arts Alliance wanted to take a program to Parker, they couldn't do it because their address is Castle Rock. So we become a little bit of a cultural desert because nothing comes in and anything here can't go out. So what does the money look like? I know that the memo that you got this year or this week had a little bit different numbers. We just got this from the website and staff. So our numbers are a little bit different, but the math is essentially the same. So we were basing it on 1.8 million in SCFD um, revenue generated. Um, so if the 84,000, that's an estimate as well, 84,000 residents of Castle Rock were to pay 100% of the tax, it would be $22.38 per resident. However, we know that's not really the case, right? We know 70% of it is actually paid by out-of-town residents or out-of-town visitors. So it's actually the 30% that residents would pay, that $6.71 that would be the impact on the residents. Um, so maximum, it would be $22. If they paid 100% of it, more likely, it's about $6. And we're already paying for it. We're already subsidizing it. So if you shop anywhere on the front range other than Castle Rock, if you shop at the mall, if you shop at Costco or Trader Joe's or Best Buy, you're already contributing to SCFD. You're already paying for that arts funding that's not coming back to Castle Rock. And if you throw in the outlets, it's at a 90% level. So we know that a, there's a very high percentage of that tax that isn't actually paid by residents. So what's the impact on local um, in terms of we know what it would cost, but what's the potential impact on our economy? So the National Endowment of the Arts did a pretty broad study. Uh, I don't remember what year it was, but we've got all this data. Oh, by the way, if anybody wants to geek out on data, we are down for it at any time. Um, but the average uh, attendee to an event will pay an extra $38.42 in addition to their ticket cost in the local economy. 
of that $38.42, $27.24 actually goes to sales tax generating areas like food, drink, retail, clothing. So not only are they coming to the event, but they're spending money on top of it. 30% of the average attendees come from out of county. So we're bring, again, we're bringing people into our community from outside and having them spend money here. So we asked ourselves the question, does Castle Rock care? Is it a part of our value system? Do we want to have these kinds of programs? Maybe not. We tried to have a very open mind about it. Um, we know from the Public Art Commission's um, 2023 survey that 91% of residents said that arts and culture contribute to their quality of life in a positive way. But we took it a step further and said the Bureau of Labor Statistics 2020 Consumer Expenditure Survey, this is the ESRI data that came out of it. So what this data, we just took a little snippet. Again, we can geek out on data all day long, but 100 is the average for the United States. Anything above is an index above. So entertainment, recreation, and emissions, we indexed at 166 over the national average of 100. Um, but what we thought was really interesting at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in a place where winter sports are such a part of our DNA, that tickets to the theater, opera, and concert indexed almost the same as winter sports equipment. So if you think about it, people want to go to the theater as much as they want to buy skis. That's pretty impactful, right? So let's look at the demographics. In 1999, which is the last time that we were that the Castle Rock community was able to vote on this, the population was just under 20,000 people. Today, it's estimated about 84,000 people. What do they look like? Median age, 36. 77% of them have college or some college education. The, um, their income is about $154,000 a year and their average home value is $665,000. What we have are young, smart, affluent millennials. Who wants a young, smart, affluent millennial? Companies that are looking to relocate. These are the four pillars of relocation. Financial incentives, the package. Infrastructure, those roads and rails. Workforce development and quality of life. But what I want to frame up today is that, I don't know if you guys remember from a couple years ago when Amazon was looking for a new headquarters and they had everybody in the United States putting together their best package. But what did they come out and say? They said, we want to be where people want to be. We identified cities where millennials want to live because they were looking for young, smart, affluent millennials. That's where they wanted their headquarters to be. And they narrowed it down to those cities. That's where they started. Why do we care? What do millennials want? They want all the cultural amenities. They want theaters, museums, fairs, concerts, music, all forms of entertainment. They don't want to be in the middle of nowhere. They don't like suburbs. Companies know that and they pay attention to that. When the Public Art Commission did their survey in 2023, what they found is that the majority of people in Castle Rock felt that Castle Rock was a standalone community. And even of those that didn't think it was a standalone community, that thought it was a suburb, the only reason they stated that they didn't think it was because they had to go to Denver for arts and culture. We are uniquely positioned with an arts and culture component and the firm millennial base to be attractive to, to business. So why do we care now? Well, we need town council. 
um, or a petition for ballot inclusion in 2024. And the reason for that is the legislation reads by 2025. The way the timing's going to work is that we have to vote by 2025. The legislation gets written in 2029 and goes into effect January 1 of 2030. Our town, if we were to say yes, would be eligible to bring in programs in 2030 and to apply for programs in 2031. So we're playing the long game. But even longer game than that is if we don't vote now or if we choose not to include it now, the next funding opportunity is 2042. If you think about that, a child that's born today will be 18 years old in 2042. We will have skipped an entire generation and said, nope, that's not for us for this entire generation. Um, when we were speaking with the SCFD folks last week, um, there's even talk that that could be a 20-year gap. It could be an even longer gap. There could be multiple generations that are missed. So in summary, <laughs> um, of the tax itself, about 70% of it is actually paid by out of town. We're already paying into SCFD. If we shop anywhere on the front range, we are subsidizing this funding. There's no impact on the town of Castle Rock's budget. This is not taking away from the budget. This is new and this is on top of. Arts, culture, and science can actually contribute to the economy, both on a micro level, through event expenditures and people that come to our community, but also in diversifying our tax base and bringing in companies. And unfortunately, which stinks for all of us, this decision this year or lack thereof is going to affect an entire generation. We just don't have a choice. The legislation is written that we have to decide in the next year. So it's time. I would love to be able to kick the can down the road a couple of years, but that's just not our option right now. And it's the reason we have to be here today. And if we don't, if we choose not to, we remain that cultural desert where nothing can come in and no one here can take their programs out. So for an additional $6 a year, Castle Rock can access a portion of that $1.5 in Tier 1 funding, not even including the Tier 1 and the Tier 2 funding that we are already subsidizing. And there are 84,000 people, that's, you know, 64,000 more than there were the last time we voted, um, that haven't had a voice in 25 years on this um, issue. So what I have, what I'm asking you today is what questions do you need answers to be able to decide is this the time? Is this the time to include it on the budget? Is that my ding? <laughs> I don't know if you have questions for me now or if you want me to wait until later. <laughs> we have um, uh, five, five people open the pub for public speaking. Okay. So I will now open to the public. I have five people who are signed to speak. When I call your name, please approach the podium, speak in a microphone. Online users may use the raise your hand feature and phone in and call or press star three and please use your name. Whether you're a resident, non-resident, or business owner, you will have four minutes to speak. Um, first, I have Dana Franzi. Right, is that, Dana, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Is that close? Frazy. Frazy. Hi, I'm Dana Frazee. I live here in Castle Rock, and I am president of the TriArts Project, which the mission is to open and establish art center. Thank you. My husband, John, who's in the back here, he and I went through the Town Academy last fall. 
And after that eight-week course, we walked away with a very deep appreciation for what this town has done for our future. We heard much pride from every department's personnel about how Castle Rock has everything in place to be a standalone community. And that's what we found in our Public Art Commission survey too. People thought about standalone community. We do have the nuts and bolts in place here in Castle Rock. We have parks. We have a fantastic recreation program. But coming from the artist side of things, I believe we are missing something very important, the heart and soul, art and culture in this community. I believe that we should have a cultural art center where we bring together those 16 nonprofits that you saw on your slide. And we have a place where people can come together and appreciate art classes, appreciate dance, appreciate poetry reading, appreciate art therapy classes, art exhibitions, music, dance. We need this. We have these organizations already in town. We've talked to them. I'm president of one of them. We need more program funding, but we're not allowed to apply for the SCFD tier three funds, the grant funds, because we're not in the district. Interestingly, as you heard Jen say, anytime we leave Castle Rock, we are paying that one cent sales tax into SCFD. I shop at Park Meadows Mall, that's Lone Tree. So every time I shop there, Lone Tree is getting my one cent sales tax going into their art and culture programs. Their, their culture and art organizations are benefiting from Castle Rockers who shop there. We have a very large uh, ta sales tax generator here in town, and that is the outlet malls. 70% of those people who shop there come from out of town. Just imagine, what if we could have them pay that one cent sales tax to help us get into SDFD like we are already paying them so that they are in SCFD, you see? We, it should be more reciprocal. So, Mr. Corliss and members of the council, you have the opportunity right now, this year, we don't get to choose for another 12 years, this is it, this is the year for you to plan for the future. The SCFD sales tax initiative should be on the ballot. Let all of these Castle Rock people vote to opt in. We have the nuts and bolts. Let's plan for the heart and soul in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. <laughs> Next, I have Rick Young. Good evening. My name's Rick Young. I have uh, worked in Castle Rock since 1991 and lived here since 2001. 
I taught high school art and social studies in the Douglas County Schools for 25 years. Since retiring as a teacher in 2016, I've worked as a professional artist. As a teacher at DC Oaks High School here in Castle Rock, I found that most of my students yearned for the chance to express themselves artistically. They needed more than just academics for school to be relevant and meaningful to them. Some of, some of them lived to draw, to paint, or to sculpt. Others found their creative outlet in music, dance, or theater. As a parent, I was always on the lookout for artistic outlets for my daughter. Sometimes she found opportunities in school to indulge her creative interests, but often we had to look elsewhere uh, for the musical and theatrical experiences that she craved. There were never enough programs in Castle Rock to satisfy her love of theater and the arts. As a town resident, I find myself yearning for encounters with the arts right here in my hometown. Castle Rock is not the same sleepy town I first encountered back in 1991. It is a wealthy, fast-growing town of some 85,000 people. It is time for this town to grow up culturally. We shouldn't have to drive 20 or 30 miles to take in an art exhibit, a theatrical production, a concert, or a dance recital. One way to give a boost to the arts and culture here in Castle Rock would be to finally join the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District, or SCFD. SCFD provides nearly $1.5 million a year to cultural organizations operating in Douglas County. This money helps to fund the Lone Tree Symphony Orchestra, the Parker Symphony Orchestra, the Roxboro Arts Council, the Littleton Corral, the Littleton Town Hall Arts Center, and many, many more organizations. But since Castle Rock is the only major town in Douglas County that is not part of the SCFD, none of this funding can go to orchestras, choruses, art centers, theater groups, dance troops here in Castle Rock. So local arts groups like the Castle Rock Band, the Castle Rock Corral, and the Castle Rock Artist Alliance struggle to operate on shoestring budgets, and all of us are forced to drive to Parker or Lone Tree for year-round musical and, and theatrical entertainment. It's time for Castle Rock to join the rest of the seven county district that funds cultural offerings through a small sales tax. How much would it cost? Just one penny for every $10 spent. That sounds like a worthy investment to me. I urge the town council to refer the question of joining SCFD to Castle Rock voters this November. Let the voters decide. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Next, I have Katie D. Thank you. <laughs> Hi there, I apologize. I'm not a speaker, but I have a lot to say, so I'm going to try and 
not be too fast. Um, so this memorandum uh, that provided to you is accurate, but it can be misinterpreted. Tier one programs do receive a large portion of the funds, but they have a lot of programs and serve a lot of patrons. This uh, includes funding to help maintain these massive institutions that we all continue to enjoy. Um, imagine the scale of this on doing it by Castle Rock's own accord. But let's be selfish for a minute. Maybe you wanna keep your own money. So we look at the programs that they offer. For example, the Denver Museum of Nat uh, Nature and Science provides uh, programs such as a field trip adventure program, which is a full day with a class-led expert uh, for the group. You throw in a planetarium trip. This is approaching $350 for a single trip for a single class. You throw in transportation to the event. It's another couple hundred dollars. SCFD would cover or could cover some or all of those costs. If you're looking at the 1.3 million that go to uh, tier one and two, realize that goes into a pool that goes out to organizations such as Lone Tree Arts Center and Parker Arts, which received a combined total of $800,000 in 2022. To support us, they're supporting us with their arts and culture. Were Cantrell to host an arts and culture center, it could also be possible to apply for funding, but only if we join SCFD. The memorandum also uh, talks about county allocation. This is only a calculation of where the money would go, our investment. It's $250,000 that would open us up to funding such as the 1.8 million that went to Douglas County Tier 3 organizations in 2021. For example, the South Suburban Parks and Recreation Creation uh, in Parker received $123,000. In 2023 alone, the Douglas County Cultural Council had a $500,000 surplus that we didn't have access to for our programs. And keeping in mind the big picture, this opens us up to programs throughout the district. Tier three organizations across the district received nearly 1.2 million specifically for Douglas County programming. On average, they're spending 25% of their allocated funds in Douglas County. For example, Denver Audubon spent 32% of its total SEDF funds in Douglas County. Ocean First Institute, a Boulder run organization, runs microplastic research programs and received 12,000 in funding in 2023. They originally had a program in Castle Rock and pulled out because there was no SCFD funding here. But we can be selfish and say who cares about the experiences of Castle Rock residents. SCFD funded culture and culture itself generate revenue directly and indirectly to this town. The creative industries draw businesses, draw and retain residents, increasing labor force levels. American for the Arts performs quantitative research studies published um, uh, and found Colorado impacts. Douglas County alone has 12, over 1,200 art businesses employing 47,000 people. Culture generates revenue for local businesses through participation, particularly the revenue you see coming from people outside of town. These are self-perpetuating sources of revenue as events and programs change, lecture series uh, you know, change uh, speakers, and they generate more and more revenue. With 24% of the town's revenue coming from sales tax, the town should be excited to explore ways to increase this revenue. Nationally, on average, we talked about 30% of attendees coming from outside the county, bringing revenue to the area. That's 38.42 spent locally not at the event, but in the town. This is, these, these are spent on food, drink, retail shopping, clothing, groceries. These are all Castle Rock's largest sales tax generating um, categories. 
That's about 71% of their spending directly to our businesses in sales tax. Think the Cham uh, Castle Rock Chamber Art Fest with 13,000 attendees, 60% of which were coming from out of town. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. <clears throat> Next, I have Julie Browning. Good evening. My name is Julie Browning and I am here to speak briefly and extemporaneously as a parent. I raised my children here in Castle Rock and um, they're sitting behind, one of them is sitting behind me. Coach Hollinghead um, might recognize him. <laughs> um, they grew up here without the benefit of these arts programs. And um, I'm soon to become a grandparent. In the next few years, I know it. So please, don't allow my grandchildren to grow up with the th without the things that uh, would have benefited my children. It's time for us to do this. And I yield the rest of my time. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. I have no one else time to speak. If anybody wishes to speak, please approach the podium. Or online users can press star three and, and star and use the raise your hand feature and press star three. Our online users uh, may, may may speak as well. Please state your name, whether you're resident, non-resident, or business owner. You have four minutes to speak. Seeing none, um, I want to appreciate everyone's participation. Um, I don't think we have anything else to add this time. I'm not sure if Dave has anything to add this time. Uh, no, Council, I think it, as with any budget type request, revenue request, I think it's always helpful to see the, the, the totality of, of requests. Um, very much appreciate the, the presentation. I, I, I learned a lot. Um, um, when, when, they, when I talked to the supporters, um, they, they didn't want to come up in four-minute increments, and they, they wanted 10 minutes, and, and the presentation was, was spot on, so I appreciate that. But I think it's really helpful for you to see the, the totality of all of the budget requests. You're going to hear a little bit more about fire later on. Um, and you know, we, there's different philosophies in regards to role of government, different philosophies in regards to, to revenue. I, the only thing that I, that I saw that I would necessarily disagree with is is that when it says this doesn't impact Castle Rock, um, it does impact Castle Rock in the sense that that would be money that we could not ask for to fund uh, town services, and I think that all has to be part of your calculation as you look at budgets. We're in we're in for a season of um, uh, some challenging resources, and um, I think you all. Um, as appropriate, decide the role of government and decide the priorities. And all I ask is that you see all of them before you make decisions about one of them. And that's, that's our role is to make sure that you see all of the different spending requests, perhaps requests for more taxes from taxpayers, perhaps not. Um, but you, I, you really need to see all of it in my mind before you make a decision about one of them. That's my request. Okay. Thank you, David. I want to thank everyone for coming. It gave us a lot of food for thought, and I would imagine this is probably not over with, but I do appreciate it. So thank you very much.
Moving on to number 13 on resolution 2024-12, resolution approving the construction contract with AOK Colorado LLC for the Cantrell School renovation project. Good evening, Mayor. Thank you, Town Council. Uh, so we do have a construction contract for your consideration here tonight. Uh, but before I get into that, I'd like to give a few updates about what's been happening at the Cantrell building. I was thinking back, we've actually been able to access the building for just over six months at this point. And um, there's been a lot done in that time. So on your screen, you can see uh, what, our, what Jeff's team has been doing from the recreation side. We've had a number of programs, 51 different programs with 328 participants uh, participating in languages, dance, theater classes, and they do have summer camps planned for this summer. Our facilities maintenance division has been busy over there as well with refinishing floors, repainting much of the inside of the facility. I think it was a total of 130 gallons of paint that they put on the property. And uh, unfortunately, we did have a couple of repairs we weren't planning on with the gas line and uh, water line there. We're also continuing to work on electrical engineering and some other for some other improvements there. You can see some pictures on the screen of uh, from some of Jeff's team and their programs that they've held over there. And I do also want to point out that uh, we're continuing to work right now on a number of grant applications for future improvements to the exterior of the building, really focused on window rehabilitation at this time. So we're trying to chase down additional dollars wherever we can to, to continue to maintain this property. So looking at the renovation project here at Cantrell, we are focusing on accessibility improvements to the building at this point. We're looking at about 1,400 square feet right when you walk into the building. You can see on the screen um, on the right side is the floor plan of the construction area with where my cursor is. If you can see it, that is the main entry area. The first room to the left would become a restroom facility, um, updates to the the kitchen and this existing restroom area and then the addition of an ADA lift um, in those stairs. So I'll walk through those in a little bit more detail for you. Um, you can see here there are some pictures on the screen showing the existing conditions. This is the first room on the left side which would become restrooms. Uh, we would have men's, women's, and one family restroom that would be constructed here and we would be adding a heat pump to heat and cool that space. You can see there are four of the original windows. This is part of the 1930s edition. Um, and you can see the photo showing the condition of some of those windows there. Uh, we do want to restore those windows uh, to their former glory and uh, make sure that we are sealing up and weatherproofing the building as part of this renovation. On the right side, you can see a rendering provided by our designer showing what um, those restroom areas will look like with some of the, the finishes there. Next, we have the addition of the lift. You can see the stairs going up to the first floor of the main structure. And uh, the type of lift that we're looking at here is really pretty unique. It's a, called a flex step lift. And this stair structure actually converts into a flat platform, which would then be able to raise a wheelchair from that main entry level up to the first floor of the original structure. Um, this would be a, will be a great use of the space um, where we don't have to impact much of the existing structure. 
Additionally, there is one single stall bathroom that's in this entry area, and that's going to become a check-in desk and an area for our recreation staff to have a sight line into the facility and be able to have kind of a ticket-taking counter or a registration area, just a general front desk area for them. Next, we're looking at a kitchen renovation. You can see the existing kitchen on the left picture and then the proposed on the right side. Uh, this does um, improve the cabinetry and the layout of the space while also adding some appliances that will benefit the programming we are planning there um, to include a, a microwave, an ice maker, and a dishwasher. Um, note that it will not be a full commercial kitchen. Um, it's more intended to serve for, to support catering services, those types of things. Um, I think you all were at the, or maybe familiar with the board and commission dinner that we had there where we did something very similar. Um, and then one last part that people won't really see, but we need to do some structural improvement for the lift as well as um, to, to handle the, the loads for the increased programming that we're planning in the facility. So the budget impact, this construction contract with OAK, we did bid this out to pre-qualified bidders, and OAK Colorado was the lowest bid at $804,000. And you can see we're also requesting a 10% town managed contingency. So those line items uh, with other pro project costs with permitting, materials testing, and so on, will bring the total project cost to right around $930,000 for this. Uh, we are um, we are using funding that was allocated last year. You may recall in a budget amendment last fall, we did set aside some funding for Cantrell improvements. We identified about $800,000 for this project at that time. We plan to carry those dollars forward and we also have additional money left over from last year and some funding this year that we'll be able to utilize within the general fund to pay for this project. Um, if this is approved, we would begin immediately and um, estimate that if all goes as planned with a 125-year-old building, that um, we would complete construction in August of 2024. So with that said, uh, I'm available for questions, and I do have proposed motions on the screen. Thank you, Matt. Questions for Matthew? Seeing none. We'll bring it to town, we'll bring it to the public. I have no one signed to speak. If someone wishes to speak, please approach our podium and speak a microphone. And online users may use the raise your hand feature and phone in callers express star three and state your name and whether you're a resident, non-resident, or business owner. You'll have four minutes to speak. Seeing none, we'll bring back to town council for a possible motion and discussion. I move to approve the resolution as introduced by title. Second. Our first by Councilmember Holland said, a second by Councilmember Cavey. Any further discussion? I'd just like to speak in favor of it. I, it's a lot of work. I, I understand it. I think we all understood that this is going to be a work in progress, maybe a 10-year project, and uh, I do appreciate it. And I know it's a lot of money, and I think it's it's wor well worth it for this building. Roll call vote, please. Councilmember Hollingshead. Aye. Councilmember Cavey. Yes. Councilmember Bracken. Yes. Councilmember Brooks. Aye. Councilmember Dietz. Yes. Mayor Pertem LaFleur. Aye. Mayor Gray. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Moving on to number 14 on the agenda, resolution 2024-13, resolution approving the Castle Rock Fire and Rescue Department 2020-2024 community-driven strategic plan for 2024 update. Chief Norris. 
Thank you, Mayor and Council. Uh, this is our annual update uh, to Council on our strategic plan. Uh, this will be the last update for this particular plan uh, as it does expire this year. We will be working on developing a new plan 2025 through 29 uh, later this year. So in summary, our strategic plan basically outlines um, really the community and membership input, uh, what those uh, key values are. We have our mission, vision, and values in there, and it sets really uh, a path for us to move forward for that continuous quality improvement. It is part of our accreditation process, and we are required to have that, and we are required to brief you on that on an annual basis, and you are required to approve our updates once we present those to you. So we had six um, items in this particular plan. As you see on the screen, the CWPP was uh, completed and adopted, and we are in the process of implementing that now. The Global Technology Review, which was basically looking at all software uh, that we're currently using, has been completed. We switched out our records management systems and implemented that last year, and have consolidated a number of other items. Our Special Operations Management Plan, which is all of our technical rescue type things, so trench rescue, uh, rope rescue, all of that was uh, redeveloped uh, and has been completed and then our facilities update plan has been completed as well with adding additional items into the stations to allow for them to go back in service without having to move to another station to use a specific piece of equipment. Uh, one item that's still in process is our fire training center update so over off of uh, uh, Malibu and Park we have our fire training tower over there we continue to make improvements there uh, that will hopefully get us down the road for uh, quite a while in being able to use that site and then the last thing that we had in there was our fleet and logistics facility plan. Uh, that's currently on hold. We know that we need a larger uh, maintenance facility for our fleet, uh, but at this point in time with uh, other priorities in place, we have opted to place it on hold at this point in time. So that completes uh, this strategic plan um, through 2024, and like I said, we will be rewriting a new plan uh, involving uh, community, yourselves, Public Safety Commission, etc., cetera, uh, as we develop the plan for 2025 through 2029. Public Safety Commission has uh, reviewed this, and they recommend adoption, as does staff, and I'll entertain any questions that you have. Any questions for the Chief? Max Brooks. Regarding the, the maintenance piece of the plan, um, understand it's on hold. What is your longer term plan with being able to bring that back into action? Uh, one, we need to, to one, find funding, quite frankly. Um, we need a larger facility, which also means we need dirt, and dirt is not uh, highly available here in town. So we're looking at different options about what we can do to uh, potentially co-locate with maybe another department, uh, co-locate onto potentially another station, or look at other opportunities. We've just got to kind of step back and, and look at what's available and see what we can do to, to push a plan forward. Larger facility would come with uh, increase in personnel, I would imagine, too, yeah, additional, 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 like, additional mechanic, stacks. yes. Yeah, okay. Correct. And, and then so pushing it out, though, again, I don't mean to pressure on this, but just you know, what, what would be the potential timeline for that? Uh, at this point, I, we don't have a timeline established. I anticipate that will be built into this next strategic plan. Yeah. Uh, so as we sit down and look at our options, uh, building that into at that point, and then seeing where we can go. Right. Thank you, Chief. Yes, sir. Councilmember Dietz. I concur with Councilmember Brooks. I think maintenance is very important coming from that background, automotive parts world. Um, my daughter comes back in the town, I take her car for a spin. <laughs> I don't want a fire truck out there with bad brakes. So I think we'll do some talking here, and that's something that sounds important. I don't like stuff that, that on hold. So, but I also understand 
why it's on hold. So. Sure, and, and understand that we are currently conducting maintenance. Yeah. We have a uh, emergency vehicle technician, senior emergency vehicle technician. Uh, all of our things are maintained to NFPA standards. Uh, they're all good brakes, they're all good pumps, so we are making that happen. We're just very limited on the space that we have to do that. So for example, uh, we have one of our aerials that's out of service right now. We don't have the, the space within our current facility to be able to keep that inside and work on it. So we actually use a bay at uh, Station 152 down in Crystal Valley because we're able to put the aerial up inside the bay and be able to work on it and leave it in there. We have that space to do that. Uh, but I can I can assure you our, our apparatus are being well taken care of uh, in conjunction with uh, Public Works Fleet Department. Uh, they work on a lot of our light fleet, so brush trucks, staff cars, things like that. Uh, they, are, they are being addressed. Thank you. Any more questions for the Chief? Seeing none, I open this to the public. No one will send to speak. If someone wishes to speak, please approach the podium. And speaking to the microphone, online users may use the raise your hand features and phoning callers press star three. Please state your name, whether you're a resident, non-resident, or business owner, you have four minutes to speak. Seeing none, we're back to town council for possible motion and discussion. I move to approve the resolution as introduced by title. Second. Um, I'll give the first to Max Brooks, the second to Councilmember Dietz. Um, any further discussion? Max Brooks. I'll give it to her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chief, I, I, I would like to see incorporation of kind of that maintenance plan in the in the next iteration. At least so that now we were having the discussions. I understand you can't put a timeline on it, but it, I think it's important for us here to make sure that we're having those discussions, especially as we're bringing a new fire station online, we're adding more apparatus. Um, want to make sure that, that, that we've got a, a plan in place. Yes, sir. So, thank you. Thank you. Any further discussion? Roll call vote, please. Councilmember Hollingshead? Aye. Councilmember Cavey? Yes. Councilmember Bracken? Yes. Councilmember Brooks? Aye. Councilmember Dietz? Yes. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur? Aye. Mayor Gray? Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. So, Mr. Mayor, as an addition to that, as we were kind of talking about strategic plans and updates, uh, Mr. Corliss asked that I also do a quick presentation on Station 156 since we were talking about new stations and new apparatus. That's acceptable. Absolutely. Great. So when we start looking at future fire stations, there's a number of different things that we look at. We look at call volume, we look at response times, uh, we look at what we call an ERF or an effective response force, uh, and we also look at what we have known as future growth, what's being planned in that area, as well as our projected increase in call volumes. So when we look at station 156, we're looking all of those different items, and our department intent is really to try and stay ahead of that curve. We want to be able to meet that level of service in those particular areas without negatively impacting any other area of the fire protection district or of the town. Currently, we are not meeting our response time objectives out in the Cobblestone Ranch uh, terrain neighborhood or fire management zone six. So when we start looking at station thresholds, again, we use a variety of uh, items there. If you see in the first column, operational means that station should be functioning when we're at roughly 365 calls a year or any of the other items that are down there that are not being met. The planning threshold is at 256 meaning that at that point in time, we should start looking at putting that station into place or if we're not meeting anything else uh, down below. So response time really does play a major factor in there. 
When we look at our current fire management zone for station one, uh, for fire management zone six, where station 156 is going, you see a lot of red down there in the bottom. While we're not meeting the call volume currently, we're at 219, and I don't have 23's data because we haven't finished that yet. But in 22, we had 219 calls, so we're we're pretty sure we're at the planning threshold this year for just number of calls. The bigger issue is our response times down here below. And when you see that we're at 35%, 33% on meeting these first arrival times, meaning that's the first unit arriving on scene, and then the EARF benchmark is all of the units arriving on scene, that's very concerning for us. We have a significant population out there, and we know that it's going to continue to grow. So this is why we've begun the uh, process to put Station 156 in play. So we look at future growth out there, we know that terrain north is, is continuing to potentially move forward. Uh, Canyons far south has already been uh, annexed and we know that they have a plan. We will continue to see that uh, growth in Cobblestone Ranch and there's still areas and pockets of the fire protection district that exist within that fire management zone as well uh, that we really don't know what's going to happen with that as we move forward. So we talked about terrain uh, uh, north and you've seen that. Uh, so. Pleasant view is here. Castle Oaks is the main drive running through it. We know there's, at least at the last time we met with them, uh, roughly 105 homes, uh, additional open space. As we look at the Canyons Far South annexation, um, the red star indicates where we're hoping to put the station. So again, Castle Oaks Drive. Uh, but we know that 474 homes roughly are going in there with additional open space. So all of that's gonna add to the existing call volume that's currently there. Other compounding factors that we look at when we get in there is that additional open space uh, and access to trails results in more calls. And we've seen that uh, as we've uh, added open space and trails and we end up out in those areas. It also adds for the potential for wildland issues in that uh, formerly area, uh, areas that were not accessible are now accessible and have uh, folks there, which raises the potential risk for a wildland fire call. Obviously, increase in, in uh, vehicle traffic comes with the associated uh, developments. Uh, and then we continue to see just an increase in our overall call volume in the entire city and district as a whole uh, and we still have to do training and we have to do public education all of those other things that go along with that so if if we have units that are committed to training that's contributing to our uh, poor response times because they're not available to go to that initial call so again trying to balance that and then ultimately in that entire fire management zone we're continuing to see that overall growth so what we're proposing and we've been working on to this uh, to this date is the proposed location will be at Castle Oaks Drive and Pleasant View. So this being Castle Oaks Drive, Pleasant View, sitting to just the west of Cobblestone Ranch and on the backside of terrain. Uh, it's currently town-owned property, so we don't have to worry about purchasing additional property, but it is zoned as open space, so it will require rezoning and replatting. And we've already uh, had initial discussions with the town on what that will entail. Uh, the Parks and Recs Department had also looked at that piece of property to put in a proposed parking lot for the trailhead system there for the Colorado Trail. Uh, we have talked to them as part of the pre-app process and we believe that we can co-locate those facilities so have a parking lot there for the trailhead as well as a fire station there uh, kind of similar to the access uh, for station 152 and the trail system down there. While there's not a lot of parking uh, this would be an option to be able to do that uh, and co-locate both facilities. 
Our proposed timeline, we are currently uh, working on signing an agreement now with an owner's representative. Uh, the uh, representative company that's been selected was a uh, done through a bid process. Uh, it's the same company that worked with us on Station 152. Uh, so we were familiar with them and we were very happy with their work and uh, their bid came in uh, where, it, where we were hoping it would be. We're working on final site procurement because obviously there's still issues that you have to work with, with utilities and everything else. We're hoping to have that done this spring. Uh, start the design process. So so we would uh, work with our architect to get a budget, or uh, work with our owner's rep to get a budget done, uh, get an architect hired, and then start the design process. Uh, construction will start hopefully late this year, continue through next year into late uh, 2025 with an anticipated opening of early 2026. And obviously as we move through these steps, uh, we'll certainly keep council uh, informed on that. So proposed and known cost, uh, obviously we have to work with the owner's rep to develop uh, what our actual budget's gonna be. Currently, looking through trade magazines and watching what's going on in the state as well as nationally, uh, construction costs are about $500 a square foot. So the intent is, is that we're hoping that station can be very similar to Station 152 in Crystal Valley, which is about 12,000 square feet. So construction cost just for the station is $6 million. Uh, apparatus, we're gonna put a uh, fire engine and a brush truck down there. Uh, for some of you, if you recall, we actually had to order that engine in October of 2022 to ensure that it was delivered by 2025, late 2025 for the station to open. Uh, and same with the brush truck. So that engine's at 1.1 million, the brush truck's about 250,000. And and staffing is always the key. You know, the one-time cost through capital for the station, the apparatus are one thing, but staffing is that annual uh, appropriation. It's about $2.5 million to have 12 people staff that station. Uh, we have added four people in 2022. We added four additional folks in 2023, and we were, uh, y'all approved three people, uh, three additional firefighters for this year. So we did that with the intent of improving our overall staffing uh, and trying to reduce our overtime budget. But uh, as we move forward with that staffing of the station, we'll have to use the existing staffing, uh, which will take, the, in essence, that 11, and hopefully we'll have a 12th in there. Uh, we'll pull that down from our existing resources, which will decrease our overall staffing level uh, and potentially increase overtime costs. But it's a matter of manipulating uh, those positions to ensure that we meet our minimum daily staffing uh, levels. So funding for all of this, uh, the engine brush truck are already uh, ordered. Uh, they've been partially paid for. Uh, capital funds are used for that coming out of our impact fees. The station has $6 million already appropriated in a capital account, and that was from the Tabor timeout that was approved back in 2020. 2020. Um, if we exceed that construction amount, then we'll actually have to come back to the town and determine uh, what the excess amount is and how we need to fund that. Uh, staffing is, is again the key. It comes out of the general fund. You're keenly aware of, of where our general fund is at. Um, we have a potential opportunity to apply for a United States Fire Administration, uh, what they call SAFER grant, uh, for 12 positions for three years. There's no guarantee that we can get that. Uh, if everything looks okay and, and we get approval from uh, town staff, then we may apply for that this year. Uh, typically, they do open it up every year. If it doesn't look feasible this year, we could potentially apply for it next year. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays out. 
So some of the challenges that uh, go along with this, again, we've been planning for the station for quite some time. Uh, if you remember back to station 152, we actually started planning for that in 2001, and it opened in 2018. Uh, this one's been on the books since about uh, 2010. Um, so again, it's not a, a quick process, but again, it's trying to forecast the right time to be able to put those services in place. So while we've been uh, working to secure the capital funding, the general fund continues to remain that challenge. Uh, and again, with those limited resources, Resources, we'll have to make the best that we can and do the best that we can to maintain our minimum staffing. Um, while we will be able to take existing operational staff to put that station in service, it does reduce our overall staffing and then also eliminates what we call our relief factor. So you can't have just a one-for-one -one position. If you hire three firefighters uh, to work one shift and one of them takes off, you have to have somebody that can backfill that position. So that's what we've been working on with our relief factor. Uh, but by doing that, it, re it reduces is the, um, the opportunity for our additional needed positions, such as a fire mechanic, because we have another station with another apparatus, uh, fire prevention officers, some of our other divisional needs that we have. Uh, and again, that new facility and the new apparatus does mean we need additional resources to be able to maintain all that. But what are the benefits? So obviously, again, if you look at our fire management zone, station 156 sits here in the yellow. Uh, the star represents the uh, approximate location. It will improve our response times and service to, into uh, not only Cobblestone Ranch, but also into the backside of terrain as well. Uh, we've done the mapping on that and the forecasting. Uh, putting that station in that location will allow us to get all the way out to Highway 83, so the very end, uh, east end of town, uh, within a six minute response time. Uh, it will also provide that opportunity to get back into the backside of terrain within that six minute response time. Um, it's also going to reduce the call load on station 155 and 153. Those are the two stations that are currently covering this area. And as those areas continue to grow, 153 being Founders Village, Castlewood Ranch, 155 being up on uh, uh, Crowfoot Valley Road, as those areas continue to grow, their call volume is increasing. So adding this station in helps relieve some of that load on those. Uh, it will also provide additional resources that will be available town wide, so they're not restricted just to that fire management zone. Uh, you're all aware that we had the fire today. Uh, we pulled units from all over town. This gives us an additional engine with staffing that we will be able to pull to additional calls. Uh, it will also allow, once uh, Canyons Far South uh, uh, is completed, uh, there's a requirement that the fire department put in that there will be a road connecting Crowfoot down to Castle Oaks Drive. So somewhere down through between the 155 and, and Castle Oaks Drive, there'll be an additional road roadway there that will not only allow access down from station 5 into Castle or into uh, that service area but that station will be able to back up station 155 and they're currently uh, receiving backup again coming either from Founders downtown or the Meadows so it's improving our availability and our responses within that and then ultimately it will also help with our ISO rating ISO is the insurance services organization that's what sets the uh, typically your insurance rates both for commercial and residential we're currently at an ISO 2 uh, the best that you can be is an ISO 1. Uh, the last time that we were reviewed, we were about three points off and staffing was part of that. Uh, we believe that we can potentially make that up and at our next review, once the station's in service, uh, that we could potentially move to an ISO class one. So that's just a, a quick overview. Obviously, like I said, we'll keep everybody informed as we continue to move forward with the project and I'm willing to entertain any questions you might have. Thank you. We have either questions or statements. This is not going to public for uh, comment. Laura Cavey. So this might be also for you, Dave. Obviously, this is in my district. It affects my district. Um, 
also in the name of being fiscally responsible. You know, everything now, the price is going up and the price is going up and the price is going up. Would it make any sense, and maybe I'm way off base here, but to start it sooner rather than later so the costs don't keep climbing like what we have um, kind of seen what has happened with um, Crystal Valley Interchange, right? Every time we go to do CVI, it's like another 500,000, another million, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. Would it help to start it sooner rather than later in order to kind of keep the cost down? Yeah, you know, Councilmember, thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, I think we're we are starting to see some prices moderate, but that but that as sure as I say that, it probably wouldn't have apply to this particular project. Um, we think we are looking at some opportunities for cost savings in the sense that we're looking for a very similar facility to what we already have. We're going to move it along as expeditiously as possible. But we're not likely to be able to staff the facility probably until um, it, until it's completed anyway, um, just given some of the, the challenges and then obviously the, the apparatus arrival and those kind of things. If, if we thought that we could save a lot of money with, with, with hitting a, a go fast button, we probably would. You know, um, so, sometimes when it goes faster, it can cost you more. So I, I, we, we think we're probably in the, the, the right sweet spot. One of the reasons why I wanted Norris to present this was to make sure you knew that this was underway, all of council does, and because it's, a, it's going to be one of our major projects. We've, we've, we're in the process, it's within my signing authority to get an owner's representative that helps us with the selection of the architect, helps us with the, the bidding process and the, and, and the work on the construction. So we've got some of that already underway. Wanted you all to know that, but also wanted you to see some of these costs. Um, operating one of these facilities costs two and a half million dollars a year. And you just heard earlier the proposal to raise taxes for, that would get maybe about a million and a half coming from, from from the community. Kind of give you a scale as to how much these things these things cost. And just want want an appreciation of all of that. And one of our challenges is is that as you all know. Um, my two favorite words are sales tax, but my two number, my two favorite numbers are two and point eight, which is how much our sales tax grew last year, which is not very much. Uh, I mean, the the, the fire department's uh, general fund budget grew nineteen percent, twenty three over twenty four. So we've got to be pretty on point to um, be able to 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 achieve this. Norris makes a really good point that. While we have hired these people, so we've built that into the budget, we've benefited from them being on staff because of, of the relief factor of, of, of some other things. We're going to be taking them away from that and putting them into a station. We'd love to be able to have a medic unit at this location. We're not able to afford that. As, as we get larger as a uh, fire department, uh, the span of control is very important. Battalion chiefs essentially are the operational chiefs for the, the department, and we'd like to have more BCs. Can't afford it. So there, there's, a, there's a lot of things in the more wants than wallet category that we're, we're running into. And um, I want to, again, our role is not to make us woe about it. We're, we're finding good ways to respond to it. But there, there's a lot of demands out there for that. Um, I don't know that speeding up the project will make it cheaper. It might make it more expensive, which I know we, you don't want. So and none of us do. So we, we think we're probably at about the right pace uh, to when we can have the equipment, have it, 
have it built um, appropriately. I appreciate and, it. It was just, you know, good. No, because I've been watching it, CVI well, it, <laughs> grow sure. and, and And the other challenge, and, and Mr. Corliss brought it up, is the fact we will not get that engine until late 2025. So could we take a reserve engine and put it in service? We could. Could we take a reserve brush truck and put it in that station? We could. But then that removes those from our availability for when one of the other engines or brush trucks breaks down, we don't have the ability to put another resource into play there. So it's, it's really based on delivery of, of equipment and uh, having that in place in order to be able to put that station in service. Totally understand. I appreciate it. The, the, only, the other comment I'd make is I, I, I don't like the, the, the improvisation aspect of some of our uh, logistics um, and apparatus fixing that we're having to go through. Uh, um, the, the issue is not whether or not we want one, it's whether we can afford a logistics facility. And I think in, 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 in Norris and I's mind, building station 156 is a higher priority than that. Because one, one of the things Norris did, it was a very good presentation, is we, we always want to start, we always want to remind ourselves of the why. You know, sometimes we get caught up into how are we paying for it, all of that, the why. And, and when you saw those red boxes, that's the why. We're, we're showing up, we're not showing up at the response time that, that, that we want to be known for and that, and that we, we want to be at. And that's, that's, that's why we're doing all of this. And so I, I'm, I'm glad council has seen this as a priority and, and we know we're going to follow through and, and make it a priority. I appreciate it. Councilmember Dietz. Yeah, public safety in Castle Rock is a paramount, and we are very blessed to be one of the few municipalities that has their own police and fire departments. I believe that funding needs to go to these type of situations and things, and the planning is terrific. And that insurance score, it's very true. With insurance rates going through the roof, keeping that, we used to, used to be even a little higher at one time, but you guys have actually brought it down, if I remember Correct. right. Correct, we were in ISO 5 remember, up until 2016. Yeah, I remember that. People were not happy, and then so if you live close to a fire station, it helps, it's very detrimental. And I challenge some of the public, go around and take a look at the other communities that have to rely on other fire stations from other places where we will have six in our own community. So I just wanna thank Chief Kroom, what you're doing and the planning everything else, and I know council here will fully support that type of funding, which is paramount to public safety. Thank you. Thank you. Any more questions or comments from the chief or staff? Thanks, chief. Thank you. Number 15, order 2024-5, orders authorizing the exercise of the town's power of intimate domain on acquire certain real property interests necessary for the Crowfoot Valley Road widening project. Daniel. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, uh, Council. Um, CVI has been mentioned tonight. It is the town's number one transportation priority, but we also have other significant projects uh, that are happening around town, and one of them is the widening of uh, Crowfoot Valley Road from Founders Parkway to the town limits. Uh, what we're asking of uh, town council tonight is authorization to uh, utilize eminent domain should we need that and be unsuccessful with some negotiations for the land acquisition. It's, it's a rarity when we've had to use that, but uh, we like to uh, basically ask this of council anytime we're getting into land acquisition just for efficiency as we go through that process. 
This is an overview of the project uh, from a real high uh, level. Um, this is a project that's been identified on our transportation master plan as a priority for the growing region, um, not serving only the uh, northern part of the town, but also the uh, uh, southern part of Douglas County as well in this uh, vicinity. Um, because it is a, a, a important corridor for the region as well as the town, we are partnering with uh, Douglas County from a funding perspective. On the right-hand side is the graph that shows the overall phases of the project and the, and the program costs associated with those phases. Um, and of that, uh, Douglas County is participating at uh, 1.7 million uh, toward, the, toward the project. Uh, we have had significant public uh, outreach and input on this, and uh, uh, we have incorporated that into the project. This is a high-level overview of the uh, corridor and some of the improvements that we're making. So the top uh, uh, chart it basically reads like a book. If you look from left to right, uh, you're, you're looking at uh, Founders Parkway on the left-hand side, and then you're moving toward the uh, northeast uh, to the right. And then when you move down, uh, you move over to the left and continue on. So uh, the, the project limits basically end at the uh, uh, border with uh, Douglas County. Uh, this is the entrance into McCanta. And this is the uh, entrance into uh, Sapphire Point Boulevard where a new traffic signal will be put into place. We're adding uh, two uh, lanes, one in each direction for the, the three lanes to increase uh, the uh, capacity to serve this area. Uh, also improving the pedestrian and bike amenities. We're putting an on-street bike lane as well as a sidewalk on the uh, southeast side of the uh, roadway. The parcels that are shown in color are the land acquisitions uh, uh, that will need to be acquired for the widening. Uh, the red are permanent um, right-of-way acquisitions, and that's a small portion of that. It's in the upper left-hand corner, uh, shown here near the uh, Nobcona intersection. Uh, the blue is the permanent easements to support the uh, new sidewalk. And then the green is just a temporary construction uh, easement that will allow us to actually uh, stage equipment and construct the project. This is a high-level overview of the projected uh, schedule for the, the uh, project. Uh, we're breaking it into two phases. We want to get the traffic signal installed at Sapphire Point as soon as we can. So we have actually uh, ordered some of the equipment for that, uh, and we anticipate having that constructed um, toward the end of uh, quarter number three. And then uh, we're wrapping up the design phase and, and are moving into the land acquisition uh, phase right now um, and anticipate uh, starting construction in quarter four of this year, which will run through uh, 2025. I'm actually going to turn this over to uh, our esteemed uh, town attorney. He'll cover some of the, uh, the legal components associated with this. Mike. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for the kind introduction. <laughs> uh, I'll have to remember that and uh, I owe you. <laughs> Anyway, uh, talk about eminent domain. Uh, the uh, process is authorized under uh, three places, uh, the United States Constitution, the Colorado Constitution, and our town cha uh, charter. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think uh, when you acquire property in this fashion, which is a, a force taking for value, uh, we are required to engage in good faith negotiations as a, a precursor to any eminent domain action with the landowner. Uh, we have to assure that the landowner receives just compensation for the property, meaning uh, we actually go ahead and do an appraisal and determine what the value of that property is. And our offers are based on that. But the important thing is, is this process, uh, we use it, we use it for the right purposes. 
We use it to assure that important capital projects like road improvements and water improvements can proceed on schedule and within budget. Next page, Jan. So uh, this is sort of a chart, and you've seen it before when we do this, uh, our prior project acquisitions. As you can see, we're very successful at acquiring property through negotiation because I think uh, we have a history of dealing fairly with uh, our property owners. So as you can see, uh, there are only a few number of cases uh, that end up, have ended up uh, being filed. Uh, uh, so uh, if you look there, um, it's 10 projects, six cases. Uh, that's a good batting average for us, uh, fine batting average. Uh, next. So uh, following the adoption of an ordinance, assuming that you decide to give us this authority, uh, we start the process of uh, uh, retaining uh, uh, a bona fide appraiser to uh, uh, conduct the appraisal. Uh, we send a notice of intent to acquire to uh, inform the owner of their statutory rights under this process because they do have those rights. Uh, the owner, for instance, may elect to obtain an appraisal of the property at our expense. Uh, we make an initial offer, we engage in negotiations. And hopefully, uh, in most cases, we reach agreement. If not, we come back to you again for permission to go file a, file a case in condemnation. Uh, and we invite the property owner to appear uh, to uh, address any issues they may have uh, during the negotiation process. So that's a bit of insight to uh, the process. Dan, I'll turn it over to uh, you to make the final request. Yeah, I appreciate that uh, overview, uh, Mike. That, that's really the essence of it. Again, we, we are anticipating that we'll have uh, successful negotiations with these uh, property owners. We've engaged them throughout the, uh, uh, the planning and design uh, uh, process so they're familiar with what's coming. Um, so I'm not anticipating that we'll, we'll have to use this, but it does help us should we get into a, a, a stuck negotiation phase. So I'm happy to answer any questions, um, and there's proposed motions on the screen for you. Any questions for Dan? Laura Cavey. That seems like a very small, you know, strip of property right there. Um, I'm hoping and assuming we're not going to have a big problem because it's not like we're trying to take, you know, 50 acres of somebody's property. I mean, what is it like a quarter? I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> it can't even be a quarter of an acre. Um, no, that, that's a very good point. When you go back and look, the the, the challenge is, is that it's it's the it's the missing link in the project. We have to have it, and if we if we don't go through this process, um, unfortunately, my experience, Mike's experience, others' experiences is that sometimes a property owner can lead you along and say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do it," and then when you're, "Oh okay, we're ready to go on the project," you said you'd sign, and they say, "Well, you know, maybe not so much," and then you got to start this whole process all over. And so the best thing in our experience is let's get the process in place. We contact them. I mean, you're, you're familiar with McCanty. You know the property. I mean, we know the developers. We're going to know most of these property owners. Usually it works out well. A lot of times it's not even the dollar value. It's who, who actually gets the check. Sometimes it's a mortgage company. Sometimes it's a developer. Sometimes there's a dispute about all of that. And sometimes when there's a dispute, we're glad that we've done this because then we just pay the money to the court, say, hey, 
we, we've got the we've got the title to it. Go to court. Go get your money. So, and and, and unfortunately, Councilman, you, you raise a really good point. It's small property, but sometimes it's that it's that small one that just is the it, it stops the project. We don't want that. We want you know this has been a long time coming. You know that more than anybody, and um, we've switched. We've switched essentially quarterbacks on the project. County was leading it. They had a little bit more on their plate, so we took we took ownership for it. Um, we got a good solid design. Um, staff has found a way to, to fast track the, the traffic signals. You guys have heard me lament about buying traffic signal poles, all of that. So we're, we're we're trying to move that forward. We don't. We think this is. We talked about speeding up a project. We think this is the most expeditious way. Seems like a lot of process on the front end. Guarantees that there won't be that that bugaboo that lets us lose a construction season later on. Totally understand, thank you. Any more questions for staff or Dan? Seeing none, I will open to the public. I have no one signed to speak. If someone wishes to speak, please approach the podium and speak in a microphone. Online users may use the raise your hand feature and phone in callers can press star three and fix your name and whether you're a resident, non-resident or business owner, you have four minutes to speak. Seeing none, we'll bring back to town council for a possible motion and discussion. Sure, go ahead. Dan, I just want to thank you and your team for all the work that you guys have done on this. I know that we went around and around and around for a while with, you know, the different folks that lived in that area from Diamond Ridge to Puma Ridge to Timber Canyon. So, um, and you guys were very accommodating of all the requests that they made, and I think we came up with a solution that works for everybody over there. So I just want to, again, extend my thanks to you and your team for, I, I know this one took a while for us to put together. No, I appreciate that. I'll pass that along to the project team that uh, made it happen. Yeah, sure. appreciate it. I move to approve the ordinance as introduced by title. Second. Uh, first by Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur, second by, by Councilmember Cavey. Any further discussion? I just want to speak in favor of it. I mean, I think we all know that eminent domain has a really bad connotation to it, but we take it very seriously and, and uh, we make sure that we're trying to make sure we treat the, the land or, or business owner as, as well as we can, so we do appreciate it. Roll call vote. Councilmember Hollingshead? Aye. Councilmember Cavey? Yes. Councilmember Bracken? Yes. Councilmember Brooks? Aye. Councilmember Deeds? Yes. Mayor Pro Tem LaFleur? Aye. Mayor Gray? Yes. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Moving on to resolution, uh, not one, sorry, agenda item number 16, resolution 2024 14, resolution approving the intergovernmental agreement for operation shared infrastructure between members of the Cherry Creek Project Reward Authority. Mark Marlowe? Good evening, Mayor and Council. This item is related to operations of the project that we've been a part of for quite some time now. And we're actually finishing up uh, Walker Reservoir, which is the reservoir out there uh, going towards Franktown on your left. Um, this, this is really the operational agreement that will tell us how we're going to operate um, that infrastructure and the project as a whole. Um, as you guys know, we have 150 acre feet of storage in that reservoir. It's a, about a 650 acre foot reservoir in total. Um, the way it'll be worked, used is renewable water, and we have 250 acre feet of renewable water supply, senior water, and Cherry Creek will be pumped into that reservoir, and that'll be used to store until we can move it down the creek to Ruder Hess Reservoir and then into our system or into our system through the pinery 
which we are connected to, and they can take the water directly out of Cherry Creek, treat it, and transmit it to us. Uh, in any event, um, the bottom line is the reservoir is filling, so we s we need a agreement on how we're going to run all this. Um, as a side note, I did want to let council know we are still trying to purchase potentially more shares in that project. Um, currently, it includes the Pinery, Cottonwood, Inverness, and us, and we are very interested in buying out Cottonwood and Inverness if we can. So that's something that's on the radar in the future here, and would be another 250 acre feet of renewable water supply. Main points of this agreement, the Pinery staff, because of their location, will be the operators for the group. They'll do the operations, run the operations. Um, basically, the members will work together on how we use this, and it'll all be pro rata based on how much water you're putting in, how much water you're taking out, thus how much energy you're using. So we'll pay our fair share of the expenses. Um, there, as a part of this agreement, they'll create a more detailed process manual on the specifics, but that manual will also designate how much evaporative losses there are from reservoir and other things like that. One of the key pieces of the agreement, I think, is that any member that decides they want to sell their shares has to provide the other members with the first right of refusal. So they can't go sell their shares to a third party. And third parties have to be accepted into the authority as well by the other members. So um, that provides us some protection. Um, this, as a part of this, we're also asking um, to pay the final assessment for ourselves on the capital. Um, you can see to date our total cost, 5.1 million. Um, that's for Walker Reservoir, that's for our share of a deep ground Denver Basin groundwater well, and that's for our share of alluvial wells that will pump water out of Cherry Creek into the reservoir. Um, this will be the final assessment in terms of that. I will just give you a heads up that we do have another project in design related to this. We want to be able to bring the water from the pinery into our system through Ray Waterman Water Treatment Plant because the pineries water doesn't meet the same aesthetic standards that our water does. And we want to make sure that water is blended into our system. So that project is a pretty significant cost, but that'll be coming forward as well in the next year. Uh, it's part of this 2024 budget, in fact. Um, with that, we took this to Water Commission. They did recommend approval. Staff recommends approval, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Questions from Mark Marlowe. Thank you, Mark. Seeing no questions, I hope there's a public comment. Had no one signed to speak. If anyone wishes to speak, please approach the podium and speak in a microphone. Online users may use the raise your hand features and phone and callers. Press star three. Please state your name, whether you're a resident, non-resident, or business owner. You have four minutes to speak. Seeing none, we'll bring back to town council for possible motion and discussion. I move to approve resolution number 2024-014 as introduced by title. Second. I have a first by Councilmember Cavey, a second by Councilmember Hollingshead. Any further discussion? Roll call vote, please. Councilmember Hollingshead? Aye. Councilmember Cavey? Yes. Councilmember Bracken? Yes. Councilmember Brooks? Aye. Councilmember Dietz? Yes. Mayor Pro Tem Lafleur? Aye. Mayor Gray? Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you.
Number 17 in the agenda, resolution 2024-15, resolution regarding the application of town council electronic participation and connected and hybrid meeting policy to future town council meetings. Kristen. Thank you, Mayor and Council. I'm stealing Mark's closing spot again tonight, but this is following up on the direction you all provided at the last meeting regarding your electronic participation and hybrid meeting policy. You directed us to bring back a resolution to update the policy, and so that's what we have before you tonight. The resolution uh, would approve a policy that would discontinue the hybrid meeting like we're currently in and would instead offer electronic participation, which is when a council member can participate remotely, but otherwise the public and staff would need to attend in person. We also have attached in your packet a neighborhood meeting policy relative to land use items. We're not asking for a formal action on that, but we did want to uh, review and discuss it with you in case you had any feedback on that. This slide is deja vu from last time we talked. This is covering some high points from an article the Colorado Municipal League released in December, which um, was part of what prompted this discussion about whether we should continue our hybrid meeting practice or do something a little different. In terms of the neighborhood meeting policy, staff's recommendation is that those would remain hybrid as the primary option, although for uh, small and non-controversial projects, the development services director would have discretion to do fully virtual meetings. Sometimes the meetings aren't attended by anyone at all, so um, you know sometimes it makes sense to have those virtual so that we're not um, using more resources than is necessary if we're not really expecting a turnout at a meeting necessarily. We wanted to note once more, like we discussed last time, that there is a separate policy that governs board and commission meetings, which gives the town manager the discretion on how those are conducted. And it would be staff's intention to follow suit with whatever councils that decides for your own meetings. So if you all move forward and approve the resolution to allow electronic participation rather than hybrid meetings, then uh, that would be the intention to follow suit for board and commission meetings, the policy allows that it does request a 24-hour notice if a board or commission member or a council liaison to a board or commission would want that accommodation because sometimes we do have to bring in staff or even a contractor to help facilitate that and so that is how we would intend to proceed with that. I don't know if you all saw in your email, but Dave did share an article earlier today that ran in the Denver Post over the weekend about some recent meeting disruptions. So it is uh, germane that we're having this conversation again this evening, and we're glad to answer any questions that you might have for us. Thank you. Questions before comment for, um, for Kristen? David. I just want to make it very clear to council, we will do what you all want in this regard. I, I've been trained to count to, to four since I've been here for eight years. And I, I want to I make sure that you understand that while we respect what the majority wants, we want to do what you all want in regards to participation. Um, when we get into some of the boards and commissions, it gets a little bit clunky, but we're going to still provide that level of support that you direct us. So as you direct us, that's what we're going to do. Um, and I can argue both ways on this. So. Um, as far as whether or not you ought to do something, you haven't asked for a staff recommendation. In my mind, is how you all want to conduct your meetings for the public. You all decide that. But I want to make it very clear, we're, we'll, we will do as you direct us. Thank you. Thank you, David. I will now open to the public comment. 
I know it's time to speak. If someone wishes to speak, please approach the podium and speak to the microphone. Online users may use the raise your hand feature and phone in college and press star three. Please state your name and whether you're a resident, non-resident, business owner. You have four minutes to speak. Dana. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for visiting this subject post-COVID. Um, my opinion on this is that COVID is over and it's time to go back to normal and it's time to show up for town council meetings, communicate with your town council members um, by email or however you can communicate with them. But it seems like you know someone can call in and, and make comments that might be inappropriate in the meeting, and I, I just think it's, it's a way for them to hide um, instead of showing up. So I appreciate you allowing us to come and talk, allowing us to show up, and I support ending hybrid meetings. There are so many other ways that they could communicate and show up for meetings, so thank you. Thank you very much. Would anybody else like to come, to come up to speak? Yes, ma'am. Hi, Anya Zavadil, Castle Rock resident. Um, I've been giving this a lot of thought since you spoke about it last time and have done a little bit of research as well. I, uh, I'm here, I wanna be here. Uh, I do wonder the, about the importance of uh, broadening our ability to have people participate in local government instead of shrinking that ability and allowing for hybrid participation does does allow us to broaden the number of people who can participate in this local government, which is so important to anyone sitting in this room. Um, so I would ask that you consider continuing that hybrid um, platform. If you do though, I hope that um, possibly town council can do a little bit of pre-work in regards to looking into meeting disturbance. If you do have someone that calls in, I can't imagine um, screaming slurs that the mayor doesn't, doesn't count as meeting, um, like disruption and possibly being able to use that as opposed to trying to talk about free speech. And because I know how important it is to cover yourselves as well. Um, so I, if you choose hybrid, I hope that you sort of preemptively consider some of that so that you can take care of yourselves as well. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Anya. Anybody from the audience who would like to speak? Anybody online? I have one person online. Council, uh, Karen Johnson. I wanted to um, ask that Council please continue the current policy on the remote participation from our residents. I think it's um, it just is um, beneficial for those that maybe had to work late and 
but yet there's an item on the agenda that they really wanted to um, speak in favor of or against and um, were not able to arrive at the meeting and so they can um, join remotely to still be a part of the community and provide their input and comments to um, the council. I know council um, wants to hear from the residents and um, really I think keeping this um, on the books benefits all of you as well as our community and residents. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else online? Thank you. We'll bring it back to town council for discussion and a possible motion. Laura Cavey and then Ryan Hollinshead and then Max Brooks. So um, I have mixed feelings on this. Uh, Dana and Anya, I certainly appreciate the fact that you guys come and are engaged and are here. Um, Unfortunately, for some people, that's just not realistic. Um, you could, we have a lot of elderly population. Maybe somebody has uh, ADA issues, possibly, you know, I've got a friend right now who's kind of laid up with a broken leg. She still wants to participate. Um, and I can tell you, you know, I have strong feelings about all the things that happened with COVID. But I can also tell you, I was doing online meetings for the last 15 years in my job. At Verizon, I couldn't do my job without being able to do a WebEx or um, a Zoom meeting. And I've been doing that long before COVID came into the picture. So I am of being very transparent with, you know, all of our residents, I want them to have the ability to call in if, if that works for them. They could have small children. I mean, we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Um, I don't see this necessarily as a COVID thing. I see this as a let's allow the community to be engaged thing. The other thing that bothers me about this is we're allowing council members to call in, but we're not gonna allow the public to call in. That to me is rules for thee and not for me. So if we're going to make that rule, then it needs to apply to council and everybody else. So those are just my thoughts and comments on it. Thank you. Thank you. Ryan Hollinghead, followed by Max Brooks. Yeah, I think the, uh, the go down to town hall model was developed 300 years ago in this country. And we did the exact same thing until 2020, and then we realized we could use technology to get more people involved. And it's been successful, and and I don't like when we, uh, you know, put a rule in place or change a law, whatever it might be, because of an example that happens somewhere else in the country or another city. Even um, if I was in Denver right now, I'd probably vote for this 100% because they get a million people at their meetings, and they don't need any more input. Probably, um, we don't get a lot of comment, and when we do, it's kind of exciting actually uh, to hear what people are thinking. And so when it, when we get two comments and one of them's online. Let's not lose that person. So I would, I'd be against uh, changing things right now. And certainly if we get blown up and we start getting, you know, these random people calling in, we can revisit this at any time and put it in place. So. Thank you. Max Brooks. So this has been, 
this has been a little bit difficult for me. I've, I've been on kind of both sides of this, and I've, I've chatted with a few different people about it, because at first for me, it was uh, it was real straightforward uh, that you know China virus was over, and it was time to be able to just get back to the way that things that the, the way they were before. Um, but I understand that it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but still, yeah, I, I think that's important to stress that we are in no way, in no way whatsoever, reducing the participation ability for people uh, with the meetings. They can still log in online. They can still watch the meetings. They can still, as they always have, submit comments by email. They can raise a hand and submit a written comment during the meeting. So to me, for those that are unable to attend live, they still have an ability to be able to participate in the meeting. We're not changing any of that. We're not shutting any doors on conversation. It's very important, I think, for all of us to feel like our residents, our constituents, have the ability to be able to call in and participate. None of that is changing whatsoever. I would much rather be proactive than reactive in a situation like this because I feel like it's a little bit like shame on us when we see the writing on the wall, because it's not just Denver. This article today, allow me to just kind of quote from it, that was in the Denver Post, says that there have been over 140 tracked instances since summer, just since summer, 140 tracked instances of anti-Semitic remarks being made during public comment. Durango, that's small. Lakewood, just happened with Lakewood. Um, Wheat Ridge, these are not huge municipalities that are being targeted because it's Denver or Aurora. Um, these are smaller municipalities and it's happening there. Um, and to a point that was made earlier, it's free speech. Zero, zero ability to, to shut off. We could stand up and we can leave, but you get a chance to be able to hear that for three minutes. You get to hear the, the nonsensical ramblings of a lunatic mind for three minutes, Four. right? Four, Depend if it's yeah. during guests, exactly, whether it's unscheduled or during quasi. It is happening, 140 instances since summer. Um, I don't want to subject our good residents to that, that do come here. What if we've got kids in the audience? You know, we can't shut that off. Um, I, I just, I, I feel like the, the, the ability to participate is still there. We're not changing that. We're just trying to be smart based on what we see happening and it's an unfortunate reality I think we have to deal with. Councilmember Dietz. Yeah, all, all good comments so far. I think sometimes, too, it can also become the social media butterfly of, of hiding in your basement and making these comments. I think there is a time and place that, especially as council members, I, 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 I would um, entertain Councilmember Cavey's um, council needs to be here, too. We all chose to be on council and make that decision to be here. But I, I, I wouldn't want somebody standing on my sidewalk yelling profanities too at my house either um, and then being able to run off. So I'm for people showing up in person, but I also would maybe make that, uh, make that, that just that maybe council we, we, we have to be here too. Or if you're out of town or sick, oh well. So something to think about, but I'm for in person. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Bracken. Yeah, I just, um, you know, just what Tim said right there, I, I completely disagree with that point in that when you're in a board of directors or you're, you're on a committee or you're in business, 
and um, and you need a quorum to be able to participate in that body to be able to move it forward and do our good work. And I think it's important to have that flexibility for the elected officials and the board members, just as it is for business. And you wouldn't want somebody joining your, your board meeting, your business meeting, and and being disruptive in, in any way. And um, and there's been instances that, that, you know, kids were hacking into the Zoom calls very early, um, and, uh, and a lot of them were really funny, actually. But, uh, and, uh, but you know, it, but but this is this is this is our area. This is our realm, and I and I, I am the opposite on that point. In that, um, we've got work to do, and the ability to do it um, from uh, from a more flexible standpoint is is my point. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to thank everybody for the conversation. I think it is a, it is a good conversation. I think for some people, it's it's uh, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal to have participation. Um, but I, I agree that uh, that we still can participate remotely, not so much, but you can do it with email, phone calls, um, you can do it in person. Um, yeah, Max said over 140 small towns, big towns. Um, Councilmember Bracken mentioned they do it by Zoom. Uh, people will show up naked and, and think it's hilarious. Um, and just uh, I think it's, it, it's a disruptive moment that's going to happen. It's not a, a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I, I get Ryan's, uh, Councilmember Holland's head point about we can stamp it out when it does happen. Um, but I just don't think that we have to wait for that. I, I just don't. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good conversation tonight. And like Dave mentioned, I think I feel like I can argue on both sides. I, I want to make sure our residents have a, a great forum for it. Um, but unfortunately, when Anya t spoke earlier, we're not allowed to say no. We can't stand up and walk out. We can't turn the volume down. We're not allowed to do that. There's already been um, people who have sued uh, other town councils for um, actually cutting the mics. And so that's something we can't do, unfortunately. Um, you know, and, and then uh, Councilmember Dietz mentioned about I've had people come to my house, and I've had to like shut the door or walk off my front porch or whatever it is, and then get screamed at as I'm as I'm closing the door. And it, you know, I mean, that's bad enough, right? I mean, and at least I can just turn around and lock the door, and then you know, then I have to call Jack Colley and say, "Hey, Jack, can you bring somebody down here?" But, but I mean, fortunately, that has, that hasn't happened yet. But I've had people approach me on my own lawn, and um, and that's bad enough. Uh, and, and and swear at me, and and all sorts of things, that kind of stuff. So it's, and and we have all had it. The seven of us have had that online. We we get emails where people are super upset, and and can hide behind a computer and that kind of stuff. And I just think that if you're going to yell at us, great, fine. You, even if you want to swear at me, fine. Do it where I can see your face, because even the people who have been in my front yard, at least I know who they are. So. I move to approve the resolution as introduced by title. Second. I have a first by Max Brooks, a second by uh, Councilmember Dietz. Any further discussion? Again, I want to thank the, I think it's a great discussion. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, I don't think. I, but I also think that it's, it's really tough um, to uh, open this up to people who don't like our, our LGBTQ community or our people who don't like uh, Jewish people or what have you, what color, faith, or whatever you are. Um, that is upsetting to me. I'd be, I'd be really upset if I just couldn't scream at somebody back, and I wouldn't because I don't do that. Um, so with that, roll call vote, please. You guys are persuasive. Yes.
No. Yes. Aye. Yes. Aye. Aye. Thank you. The time is now 8.17. I'll set the motion to adjourn the meeting. So moved. Second. I have a first by Kevin Bracken, a second by Ryan Hollinghead. Ryan Hollingshead. Any further discussion? Roll call vote, please. Aye. Yes. Yes, please. Aye. Yes. Aye. Aye. Thank you. We are adjourned. Thanks, everyone, for all their hard work and all their, all their input. We are adjourned.